Today on AM to DM, I'm here with Jamila Jamil and Joe Gatto from the show The Misery Index. We'll see you on the timeline. Good morning, Twitter. I'm Zach Stafford, she's Alex Berg, and you are watching AM to DM. And I feel surprisingly well-rested for a Monday morning, you I have slept. to say. You slept? You weren't clubbing all weekend? I was not <laughs> clubbing all weekend. I, was, I wasn't. I I was actually, I was in upstate New York um, teaching students, teaching the youth the journalism. That's so, so nice yeah, of you. Yeah, working with students at um, the newspaper where I wrote for when I was in college. Look at that. Um, and they, you know, Gen Z is going to save us all, is really it all really I have is. to say. It is. Yeah. You went to Cornell, such a good journalism school. It yeah. It shows, because yeah. you're such a good journalist. Oh, thank you. How was your weekend? It was good. It was really good. Speaking of youth, my little sister was with me all weekend with her husband. She's actually here on set today. You will not see her because we can't move cameras like that. But she is, she's here, which is very exciting. Wonderful. A very special guest in the studio, which is exciting for us. <laughs> it is. It is. You get to see me at live and in action at work. Oh, I love it. Well, here's a tweet from CNBC. One in six millennials have $100,000 saved. Here's how much you should have at every age. <laughs> here's a tweet from Scotchman. You misspelled in debt. I actually thought when I was reading that, that the $100,000 in debt, like $100,000 they owe, you know, yeah. it like did not think it was saved. And I think all of Twitter this morning is exploding around this because they have the same feelings. They're like, which one of my friends has 100K in their bank account and why haven't that paid for brunch yet? Because if you've got 100K of cash just sitting there, girl, you can buy the avocado toast because I can't. Precisely, precisely. <laughs> it's over for me. It's kind of like this thing that though we're seeing in the news where they're telling us millennials how to be better at our saving and our finances with this idea that we make a ton of money as it is. You know, year over year, income is not increasing. Yeah. So how are we supposed to even make $100,000, the average millennial doesn't, to even save that much money? So girl, what planet is this? I know, one thing that I always find um, really frustrating is when a lot of these websites are like, millennials, like they haven't saved $100,000 because they're too busy buying avocado toast and oat milk lattes. When I'm like, actually, the reason I haven't saved that money is because I have like 60K in student loan debt. You know, exactly. it's like, it's not, I don't think my toast is the thing that's really no. getting me down. I think it's uh, the fact that we graduated into a gig economy and yes. had to take massive amounts a great loans. recession was happening. Exactly. And yeah. also, maybe I buy avocado toast because I can't buy a house, and I never will be able to buy a house, so this avocado toast is going to be a moment of bliss, so I forget the dire situation that we are all in with our finances. Yeah, and I actually, I don't know, I think we should challenge the assumption that we're all out here buying avocado toast. I just don't know if that's true anyways. Oh, so. every meal of mine is avocado toast. Well, we, I know you're living your, uh, <laughs> your, your wealth lifestyle. You know what? We're not doing We're not doing <laughs> the elite, The elite millennial the lifestyle I yeah, is the, happening right here. <laughs> I am the archetype. I am the possibility model of buying two avocado toasts at brunch, not just one. You're my possibility model Thank for that. You. I yeah. appreciate <laughs> it. Well, let's take it to the timeline. What's something you thought you'd have as an adult and don't? Let us know using the hashtag AM to DM. I don't know, property, a house. A man. Stability. A man. A man. <laughs> Something like that. I, you know, I also thought I would have a man. And... <gasps> Ooh, tea. Wow. Oh, you my know, God. That right. was good. Woo. Thank you. Well, Girl, we are live. I know. We are live today. Okay, well, here's a tweet from Yoni Applebaum. In the nine years I've been covering Romney, I've never seen him quite so liberated, unconstrained by consultants, unconcerned about re-election. He is thinking about things like legacy and the grand sweep of history. McKay Coppins on Romney is a must-read. McKay is a staff writer at The Atlantic and joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. All right, so I want to first talk about the subheadline of this story, which describes Romney as a dissident of Trump. For the skeptics out there, um, is he really a dissident? That's a strong word. Well, he's actually really never been very friendly with Trump. I mean, their, their relationship has been kind of transactional at times. Uh, Trump endorsed Mitt Romney in 2012 when he was running for president. Romney did not return the favor in 2016, uh, warned that Trump's election would result in trickle-down racism, uh, among other things. And, uh, and, and, you know, they've had times where they've tried to work together. It always ends up kind of blowing up. And uh, lately, Romney has kind of stepped up his criticisms of Trump. He has called uh, Trump's Syria policy a bloodstain in the annals of history. Uh, he has uh, criticized Trump for soliciting dirt on political rivals from foreign governments. And in this, uh, this piece that I wrote, he actually told me that he's seriously preparing for a Senate impeachment trial and is, he, he wants to wait to see all the evidence, but is staying open to the possibility that he'll vote to convict and remove Trump from office. So, you know, I, I understand the skepticism. Republicans in general on, on Capitol Hill have uh, not, not been very, uh, 
uh, responsible or, or kind of uh, aggressive about holding Trump accountable. But Mitt Romney is in a different position from a lot of them. He's not, he's 72 years old. He's not really concerned about reelection. And so he, he is kind of uh, doing things that his, a lot of his Republican colleagues aren't willing to do. Mm, interesting. So how is Romney preparing for impeachment trials today? Well, it's funny. He, he said that, you know, he's new to the Senate. He was just elected last year. He, he entered the Senate earlier this year. So he's learning about parliamentary procedure in, in t- typical kind of Ernest Mitt Romney fashion. He's reading the Federalist Papers and uh, the co- studying the Constitution to see what, you know, he thinks should constitute an impeachable act. Um, uh, but he's also, you know, ve- following very closely the developments in the House's impeachment inquiry. And uh, he, he has been one of the very rare Republican lawmakers who has said that uh, what Trump did uh, with the on that phone call with the president of Ukraine and, and subsequently was not only troubling, but wrong and appalling and that the investigation uh, needs to continue. So you say that you've been covering Romney for practically a decade. Um, can you talk a little bit about what the impetus was uh, to, for this story um, and how you've seen him evolve over the years? Yeah, you know, I started out covering Mitt Romney in the run-up to the 2012 election uh, and then covered his presidential election in 2012 for BuzzFeed, actually. And uh, the thing about Mitt Romney was always that he was extremely cautious. He was, you know, the quintessential uh, politician who had studied his talking points and was, uh, you know, very careful about not veering uh, from those talking points. He was very disciplined. Um, And so... What's strange to me now, you know, he lost that election. He kind of went into retired from public life uh, to a certain degree. But his decision to run for Senate in Utah uh, was was sparked largely by his alarm at Donald Trump's presidency. And what's been strange to watch him this year as he's been a senator is how much more liberated he is. He's not kind of sticking to the talking points. He's not as cautious as he used to be. And just as somebody who's followed his career for so long, I thought that that was notable and thought it would be worth talking to him about it. Mm. Well, your reporting also revealed that Romney has been using a secret Twitter account that Slate's Ashley Feinberg actually found. Here's a tweet from you about it. Just spoke to Mitt Romney on the phone and asked him about Pierre Delecto. His only response, same moi. Um, So how did this burner account come up in the first place in your conversation with him? Yes. So I had asked uh, Romney, I was in his Senate office, I was asking him about Donald Trump's uh, recent kind of Twitter tirade directed at Romney. Uh, Trump had spent a Saturday, kind of a a classically two online Saturday for the president, like uh, raging against Mitt Romney for uh, his various uh, comments about Trump. And I asked him if it bothered him and Romney kind of shrugged and said, nah, I, I don't really let that bother me. It's just kind of what Trump does. And then he got up and grabbed his iPad from his his desk and said, you know, I actually have a, a, a Twitter account that's separate from my official accounts. He's very casual about it. And he's like, I'm not going to tell you the name, but I follow 668 people. And uh, what do they call me, a lurker? Uh, and so I thought that was pretty notable. So I put it in the piece. And of course, Ashley Feinberg, who is like the world's greatest Twitter sleuth at finding these things, uh, it took her like a few hours, I think, to track down what the uh, the account was. But again, when I when I talked to Romney, you know, I asked I asked Romney if that was his, uh, and expected again in 2012, Romney would have uh, given a you know very serious statement about it um, and and kind of apologized for the things he said. Instead, he was just he, he responded in French, said "c'est moi," and uh, kind of laughed it off. <laughs> well, were there any surprising <laughs> revelations in the Twitter account? Any funny profiles he's following? Was he even following you? And why do you think people were so obsessed with this bit of news? He, he was following me, uh, which I guess is a compliment. <laughs> I don't know. I saw a lot of political reporters on Twitter last night bragging about being followed by Mitt Romney's secret Twitter <laughs> account, uh, which I guess is is a nice badge of honor. Um, but, you know, he, he followed... A lot of his likes uh, were kind of... Uh, criticisms about Trump, jokes about Trump. There were jokes about some of his colleagues in the Senate. Um, again, I, I don't want to take it too seriously because I don't know if you can hold somebody's likes uh, completely against them. People, that like impulse on Twitter, uh, it can mean a lot of different things. But it is clear that uh, Mitt Romney is very tapped into the Twitter political conversation in a way that uh, maybe not every member of the Senate is. Pierre Delecto, an interesting uh, username there. Fabulous name. Yes. Well, McKay, it was so great to talk to you about this. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Here's a tweet from The Daily Beast. 
On Sunday, Mulvaney continued to insist that he had been misinterpreted and that aid to Ukraine was only contingent on corruption and additional European assistance, causing Fox News anchor Chris Wallace to fire back. And here's a tweet from Kyle Griffin. Mike Mick Mulvaney tries to defend Trump's original G7 Doral decision. At the end of the day, Trump still considers himself to be in the hospitality business. Chris Wallace responds, you say he considers himself in the hospitality business. He's the president of the United States. Joining us now to discuss is Daily Beast contributor Justin Barragona. Good morning. Uh, good morning. So what do you think was the point of Mulvaney's appearance yesterday? I don't know if there was a good point to that appearance. Uh, I don't know what was going to be accomplished from it, you know? I mean, it was obvious that he was trying to continue the cleanup that he did from his disastrous press briefing on Thursday. So he was trying to continue on from the statement he had put out a few hours from that on Thursday. But in the end, it looked like it, would, it just piled more onto it. I mean, at the end of, uh, I mean, we found out hours later from additional reporting that um, obviously Trump was very frustrated with Mulvaney's performance uh, and his inability to push back on the impeachment inquiry. So, um, I mean, it, it just looks like that it's hard to explain what they were hoping to gain from it, and especially going on with uh, Fox News' uh, Chris Wallace, who is probably the toughest interviewer, at least on the Sunday shows there is. Mm, and, you know, Wallace was really tough on him yesterday and would not let him spin his comments around Ukraine. What do you think that tells us about the situation regarding Republicans and their views on Trump right now as we go through Ukraine? Uh, well, it, it's at this moment, uh, you would have to think that Mulvaney's uh, admission to a quid pro quo puts them in a tough position. And the fact that it can't be spun out, as you saw with uh, Mulvaney's uh, appearance on Fox News Sunday, uh, it, it puts them in that tough situation. Uh, he, he was unable to try to defend his comments. And then when he just tried to say, well, I didn't say that, Chris Wallace goes, look, that you said what you said. This is the video. Here's what you said. You admitted to a quid pro quo. So when you have that sat out there, uh, it puts many Republicans, especially Republicans that are going to be looking at tough races coming up in 2020 uh, in the Senate, especially uh, in a precarious situation where how do you defend the indefensible? Um, so that's why you hear a lot of rumblings behind the scenes uh, and why they're frustrated that Mulvaney said that in the first place and that there is no real taking it back. You can't just go, well, I misspoke because it's out there, uh, which is exactly what Chris Wallace did to him on Sunday was saying, look, you can try to spin it any way you want, but you didn't misspeak. You said it multiple times on Thursday. You, there Again, there are no take backs. Well, speaking of some of those uh, rumblings behind the scenes, um, Wallace also asked Mulvaney about resignation. Um, why do you think the conversation has moved to uh, that point? Well, one, uh, apparently before uh, the impeachment inquiry began gaining steam, uh, Trump was looking there. There were internal efforts to try to get Mulvaney out, uh, you know, from folks like uh, Kushner, who was looking around to see if they could find a better candidate. Uh, but when impeachment came around, they realized that that wasn't going to be a good idea. I guess they, it, it slowed down. But now, after his performance on Thursday, it, it's ramped back up. Uh, the funny thing is that there, there really is, doesn't seem to be anybody who's going to want the job. So it may be that impeachment not only saves Mulvaney's job, but also the fact that nobody's going to want to step into those shoes at this point based off of everything that's going on and the inability to kind of defend uh, the behavior at this point. Mm. Well, Justin, thank you so much for walking us through this breaking story over the weekend <laughs> of mess. All right. All right. Thank you. 
Later on, you'll see my sit-down interview with Joe Gatto and Jamila Jamil about their new show, The Misery Index. You may notice we didn't ask her about some of the things she's been in the news about lately, and that's because we taped the interview earlier this month. But it's still an interesting conversation that you won't want to miss. Up next, it's Fire Tweets. Welcome back. I have to tell you, last night before Mitt Romney locked down that Twitter account, I was desperately <laughs> trying to find a fire tweet from the senator. Were but, you? You know, it was gone. Were you? I was really hoping there was something there about millennials. <laughs> I know. It's like now it's we'll never see the tweets. So, we'll only see what people have screenshot. Exactly. So We'll hack it, maybe. Watch maybe. out, Mitt. What, watch out, Pierre. It's not safe out Why there. Why, Pierre? <laughs> like, what is that? Is that something that, is that something I should know? Is that a reference to no, something? No, girl, I don't know. I don't I speak mean, French. <laughs> I mean, you don't speak Mitt Romney. No, I don't speak Mitt Romney French, so. Okay, Sorry, but it. we will do digging. We will find something for yeah, you. I but we to- have a tweet from someone named Simone, which is French. There we go, connection. Simone, you tweet it. <laughs> Due to personal reasons, I won't be giving a fuck ever again. Correct. I've run out of my fucks. I've Just lost them. I can't find them. Mitt Romney's mood for the day. There you go. Over. <laughs> Fractionologist, you tweet it. Stop blocking your mother on Instagram. Let her see the hoe she raised. <laughs> I, which I enjoy this one. Does your mom follow you on Instagram? I feel she like does. your mom does follow you on Instagram. She does, but I don't trust Instagram. Everyone knows I don't trust those privacy or close yeah. friends things because your friends will throw you to they uh, throw will you out first. Absolutely, to that. My mom is not on any social media, but what happens is my other family, extended family members, are um, or friends of my mom. Mm-hmm. So my friend, her friends, are always bringing up stuff to her that they see me doing. That's messy. So it is messy. You need to get them together. I, I do. I've tried. <laughs> Believe me, I've tried. All right, Amanda, you treat it. <laughs> Tinder isn't working, Bumble isn't working, meeting guys at the bar isn't working, going out with guys that my coworkers or friends hook me up with isn't working, so maybe I'll meet the love of my life on Twitter. Where you at, honey? Well, things out there sure are bleak, huh? Welcome to my life. Oh. None of it's working. Uh, my friends have now taken over my Bumble. My sister was actually part of this this weekend oh, okay. brunch, and they made me open my Bumble account. I swiped twice. And I don't know wh- which one I, like, Truly, I am so far away from these things that I don't even know, like, what's the difference between a hinge and a bumble and a, this is a bigger something about a coffee and a something? For queers, there's nothing different. Okay, bumble great. was, like, for straight women, so they have more control. We as queers get on, it's, like, the same thing as everything else. There's oh. nothing different. You're still single. Okay. You still can't find anybody. All right. <laughs> well, let's take it to the timeline. Have you met your soulmate on Twitter? If so, tweet us your story using the hashtag AM to DM. I haven't actually saw each other online before we met each other no. in real life, but like we didn't message each other. And then you were like, oh, she's fine in That's person. That's actually exactly what happened. <laughs> Corroborating. <laughs> that is actually exactly what happened. I yeah. have never really dated people off Twitter. I have met up with people and been like, this is going to work. Twitter's like too much of a dangerous place. Like, yeah. you know, no. I don't know about that. Maybe you tweet it. One hundred dollars is basically an adult dollar. Just ask Zach to. I'm, <laughs> I'm leaving. It's no. It's adult fifty cents. I'm kidding. <laughs> I don't you know where this say that. lie came from. I'm not handing out hundred dollar bills for fun, unless I'm at brunch. Well, <laughs> tweet today comes from Bucks. You tweet it. Someone once told me dating when queer is like getting a job. Either you do it online or you get referred. And Christ, they were so fucking right. I do love the referral idea of this. It's just like a friend of a friend. Like you refer two people to each other and there it goes. Do you trust your friends? For those, those things? Um, or are you the friend that refers? Because you're already married. I feel like I, I probably am more of the friend that mm-hmm. refers people. But my friends, I don't know if I would have trusted them. Some friends I would have trusted. Others, not, not so much. Others I know when they do suggest something, I ignore it immediately. I'm like, no, girl, you are not the one. You're like, I'll you're not, you. I, I don't trust you. You yeah. have no taste. Sorry, but I love you. Well, later, <laughs> you can see Alex sit down with Jamila Jamil and Joe Gatto. But more AM to DM is up next. from ITV, a journalist asked the Duchess of Sussex, Meghan Markle, about the pressure of being the public eye and the tabloids. Here's what she had to say. Look, any woman, when they're, especially when they're pregnant, you're really vulnerable. And so that was made really challenging. And then when you have a newborn, you know. You, mm-hmm. It's a long time ago, but I remember, yeah. yeah. You know, and especially as a woman, it's really, it's a lot. So you add this on top of just trying to be a new mom or trying to be a newlywed, it's, um, 
Yeah, well, I guess, and also thank you for asking, because not many people have asked if I'm okay. But it's, uh, it's a very real thing to be going through behind the scenes. And the answer is, would it be fair to say not really okay? As in, it's really been a struggle. Yes. Well, here's a tweet from Olivia Cole. I can't stop thinking about Meghan Markle and the way she looked in that interview. So vulnerable and deeply sad, but also measuring every word and knowing she had to step carefully. The way she's been treated is abominable and she carries the burden. It's not right. Here's a tweet from Ashley C. Ford. You, I don't like Meghan Markle. Me. Correct. Yes, amen. I, so many friends of mine this weekend were texting like, girl, are we getting on this plane? Who are we running up on? What are we doing? Meghan must be protected at all costs. And to see her so broken in South, I think that interview was in, it was on the continent of Africa while they were doing some state visits. Yeah. And to see that that was a space in which she finally shared with the journalists so openly because he just asked, are you okay? Like such which a simple question. also speaks to just how rare it is that I think people generally sincerely ask mm -hmm. that kind of question. And it's unusual that I think you would get someone who is such a high profile figure who then is vulnerable enough to actually mm -hmm. answer it honestly. But this conversation is really about how vitriolic the British tabloids have been towards Meghan Markle. Um, they have been incredibly racist towards her, um, in addition to all of the other garden variety mm -hmm. kinds of uh, things that they cover. Yeah, and what's been so stunning is I used to work for a British paper, the, the Guardian, so I have many friends across the pond that are colleagues and so on and so forth, and personal friends, and I've had to have arguments with friends of mine who have said blatantly racist things about Meghan Markle mm -hmm. because she is a woman of color. They think that she is, you know, gold digging, doing all these things and talking about her body in ways that mm -hmm. no other royal who's married outside has had to deal with, mm -hmm. uh, besides maybe Princess Diana, but she was a royal. Like, she was, like, when the tabloids were obsessed with her, it's because she was like this glamorous princess. But Meghan has been treated to like some good old, old-fashioned racism that did begin, you know, in the UK. They are the beginning of all of this for us here in America. Yeah, and I think one of the big conversations I saw playing out is like people are talking about how, okay, they are public figures, mm -hmm. they are royals, um, you know, they are subject to the scrutiny that all public figures are subject to. But I think that we can also parse out that this content has been racist mm -hmm. and misogynistic. Yes. And um, we can say that like that is not the same as other uh, journalism mm -hmm. that would scrutinize the royal family or even, um, you know, other kind of like celebrity content mm -hmm. fair. And I think that we can parse it out and say that it's like really, really upsetting and that she, this woman who is in this power, powerful position is admitting to yeah. Struggling. Yeah, oh, and we should listen to her. You know, being a public figure is very different than even back when uh, Princess Diana was around because, you know, social media exists. You know, sure, you should be under scrutiny, but the scrutiny comes every 30 seconds through a tweet, an Instagram post, or something. It's a little overwhelming. So, you know, it is tough, and I think we should all consider her position and have some compassion for her. I know I do. I'm yeah. ready to fight for you, Miss Markle. Yeah. So, well, we want to hear from you all. How do you feel about the interview with Meghan Markle? Tweet us using the hashtag AM2DM and let us know. Yep. Well, up next, Zach is chatting with Reed Scott and Nafisa Williams about their movie, Black and Blue. Here's a treat from Davis. Black and Blue is definitely on my musty 2019 movie list. And joining me now are actors Reed Scott and Nafisa Williams, two of the stars of the new thriller, Black and Blue. Good morning. Good morning. Girl, this look. I haven't, we, you just got on set because you know we're moving really quickly today, but you stood, I was like, wow, stealing. Oh, thank Immediately, you. it looks, looks great. Thank you, guys, you. you guys can't see, but I've already told Nafisa twice, she's got these most badass <laughs> it's shoes. It's incredible, they're incredible. My stylist actually designed them. Um, yeah, hopefully we get a picture shot of them. Sure, we're gonna get that photo, <laughs> we're gonna get the photo. Well, let's talk about the, the film, which is yes. fantastic. Explain to us, what is Black and Blue about? So, Black and Blue is a thriller about uh, a rookie cop who witnesses a murder through her body cam, and she is fighting for justice. She's she's doing the hard job of, of telling the truth and, and being courageous mm -hmm. and speaking up, which is, uh, I think, what we need to see more of in the force. Yeah, it, it's one of the fun things about the movie is that it's, you know, for a really taut action thriller, there's a lot of messaging going on. Yeah. It's really, the, the, between the, the writer and our incredible director, Deion Taylor, mm -hmm. they did a great job of balancing both things. And as actors, it gave us something to really sort of like, you know, want to carry through the yeah. movie. Yeah. It's really fun. Yeah, and the, the movie's dealing with so many different storylines. You know, yes. officers' perspective, community members' perspectives, but you're doing it through so many incredible actors that you worked with. You know, Mike Coulter, Tyrese. What was it like working with them on set? 
Uh, we had so much fun, and I think the energy trickled down from Dion, our director. His energy yeah. is so infectious, it's contagious. And he's, instead of a director, we like to call him more of a coach. He's so inspiring, <laughs> and he like literally gets out there with you and, and really pumps you up to another level to bring your creativity to surface. Mm, amazing, yeah. amazing. So Reed, you play an officer in the film, and did that change your perspective of how you think about police and the communities in which they serve? It did, yeah. I mean, one of the things I liked exploring throughout the movie is these gray areas. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you know, it, it, it's a cop thriller, so you could boil it down to like, you know, there's good guys and there's bad guys. But really what our movie is about is all of the things in between and how people sort of get lost in the shuffle. My guy, he he's he's very conflicted about the position. That, I don't want to give anything away, but he's <laughs> no put spoilers. in a position <laughs> that's very conflicting for him. I, I think he's trying to be a good police officer, but he finds himself in a very precarious situation and maybe he doesn't handle it quite the best way. Yeah, you know, these situations are incredibly complicated and they're happening constantly. And last week you posted on Instagram something I found really touching. Yeah. You said, here we go again with yet another hashtag. I'm so sick of the BS, can we, leave? Can we live? I'm so sorry to sis, hashtag Atiana Jefferson. So what toll is it taking on you to see these stories constantly? <sighs> well, I get emotional when I think about it. Um, I'm, I'm tired, mm -hmm. I, I feel hopeless. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel that something needs to be done, and, and I don't. I, I'm still trying to figure out what collectively how we do that. But I feel like my job as an artist is to tell stories just like this. I feel like I'm doing my duty mm -hmm. to try to get the word out there to hopefully spark change. Yeah. Um, but it, it needs to stop. Mm -hmm. uh, and it needs to stop now. So this movie is very timely, is relevant, uh, and, and that's how I feel about it. It's, yeah. it's very emotional to me um, because that could have been me. Yes, for sure. You know? And, yeah, and when you imagine you know, this stopping, what does that change look like? And what do you think it's gonna take for us to make that happen? Well, I, I think collectively, yeah. <laughs> a lot. So much, a lot. So much. Yeah, I think first, it, the conversation needs to be uh, just respected on a wider range, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I think it obviously starts with the government and the judicial system yeah. and how we get in there and create this change, you know, to get together. What, what's your I, I think that, I think you kind of nailed it. I mean, nothing is ever quite as powerful as a real grassroots movement. And one of the messages of our movie, not to just bring it back to that, but it's it's a line in the movie that really stuck with me is be the change. Be mm -hmm. the change. And it, it's, it's a really easy thing to say, mm -hmm. and it seems like a very small thing mm -hmm. to do, but you see it has ripple effects. If you're willing to, to put in the work in your family, community, state, country, whatever, it can be inspiring, and that's that's what the country needs right now is people to inspire other people. For sure. I think it starts with our community, and most importantly, with us voting. So everybody, <laughs> make sure we get out and yes, vote. Yes, uh, That is not a joke. 2020 has to be... Uh, some serious change happening. Yes, yeah. yes. If you have not registered, go do it. It's quite easy. Nafisa will help you. I'm putting her on the spot. <laughs> so we'll read. Trust me, I will help you. <laughs> we'll switch gears this morning. Reed, you're, uh, recently your late night co-star, Mindy Kaling, uh, had her credentials questioned by the Television Academy. Yeah. And you've worked with so many powerful women. And have you seen this standard rise up a lot on sets? Um, in terms of... Uh, seeing I'm, how powerful women are being questioned and not seen as oh, more valid sure. as men or seeing how they're having to navigate Hollywood differently. Absolutely. I, yeah, like you said, I, I've had incredible good fortune to work with really strong, powerful, intelligent women my, my entire career. Mindy's certainly one of those. Um, it's a little baffling to me, to be mm -hmm. honest, at, at this stage, that people still haven't figured the shit out. <laughs> you know, I mean, um, maybe I was raised right or something, but... I, I love, and it shouldn't even, you shouldn't have to listen to a white dude like talk about this, but I, I love working with strong, powerful, intelligent women. There's so much to learn there, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? It also, it's just interesting. You, you, you keep getting it just from the male perspective over and over, like, don't you get bored? After a while, I mean, I think it's boring. I think a lot of us, you know, I love white men, but you know, I'm tired of seeing them constantly in TV, and that's yeah. the tea on that. That's what's really cool about this film, though, with Naomi yeah. leading it. You Talking know, about a strong woman. Yeah, we don't yeah. really get to see that when it comes to cop films, and we have a a, a black woman leading this mm -hmm. film, and it's it's yep. really beautiful to see. Um, and I'm super proud to be a part of it. With that being one of the reasons that drew me. Yeah. 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 Well, speaking of powerful women leading, you lead your own show, Black Lightning. Aww, Amazing. You. you were on the cover of The Advocate, which I'm the editor-in-chief of. Chief of. God, I cannot speak today. Hey, my <laughs> God. This is hard talking. But something that was incredible this past season is that you all spoke specifically about immigration and refugees. Why was that so important to put that on your show? 
I love being a part of projects that help shift the culture and that are going to mirror what we're actually going through mm -hmm. in, our, in our country. And, and as you can see, that's been a big topic this year. It's been a big issue this year that we've been dealing with. So our, our creators and our writers of our show, they just try to really mirror what's happening and hopefully spark change again. I can't say that enough because yeah. that's what both of these projects are, are yeah. literally doing and they're breaking barriers. So we just try to stay relevant and stay on time and topic with what's mm -hmm. happening. That's really what the show is, the premises of it. It's a superhero show, but it's 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 so much more than that. There's so much message underneath mm -hmm. the superhero idea. For sure. And what are you looking forward to tackling in the next season, if you can share? I love to just continue to be true to what's happening. Mm -hmm. uh, whatever is happening, whatever we need to speak on, that's our duty to do just that. So um, we're just following the news. We're following what's happening. Hopefully that we can be a part of that change. Yeah, incredible. Yeah. And your character, you know, I mentioned that you were on the cover of The Advocate and because you play an openly queer superhero on yes. the show. What's it been like getting the response from the community around your representation in that role? It's been so emotional and fulfilling. I didn't know when I took this job. Well, first I didn't know she was going to be the first black lesbian mm -hmm. superhero. I, I didn't even know. I just was like, like Black Lightning. I'm a superhero. <laughs> but I didn't know that she was even a lesbian at first. And I think what's been very rewarding and fulfilling for me is, is not just black lesbians, but lesbians all over who mm -hmm. get to see themselves in such a positive light. We've done a great job of normalizing her sexuality. It wasn't a coming out episode or there wasn't, yeah. you know, a conflict with her parents about her being who she is. And mm -hmm. she's unapologetic about it unapologetic about it. I'm with you today. <laughs> you're good, girl. You're good. <laughs> um, and that's what I love about the character, and I think that's what young women are resonating. Yes. It, it, that's what's resonating with, yes. with the young women watching. And I think it's like saving lives, too. You know, these characters are totally, so, so important. Yeah, they're important. We so need these good. characters. Yes, we need yeah. them. And a character I need, but for different reasons, is yours, Dan. Uh, <laughs> no, I've got to read Dan. Dan from Beef. Yeah. Reed plays Dan. Uh, and, you know, the season or the series just ended. Are you happy with where your character uh, ended with his storyline? Absolutely, yeah. I, I, <laughs> He, you know, Dan was such a despicable guy. I think I used to sort of joke quietly to the writers in the early seasons, like, like the only fitting ending for Dan is to be like mowed down by a bus on like K Street or someplace yeah. in DC. <laughs> um, and the fact that he's one of the only main characters who I think sort of walks off into the sunset with kind of a win. I mean, yeah. he <laughs> becomes a real estate agent <laughs> in Orange County. And Did I you mean, expect that? No, not at all. Not at all. When, when, they, when they told me about that idea, I loved it. It seemed so fitting. Yeah. And I thought our finale was just, it was a really satisfying way to wrap up a yeah. very long and very special series. And a much celebrated show. Yeah. So congratulations. Thank you very much. Well, thank you both so much for being here. Thank it was you. lovely chatting with you. Thank you. It's so nice to be able to talk about real issues with folks. So oh, you all had great yeah. things to say about yeah. that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, of course. Well, Black and Blue is in theaters this Friday, but up next, we are revealing our man crush Monday. Here's a tweet from Kylie Kyles. Wale was really everything last night. First of all, dude is fine as fuck. Second, I have really been listening to him from the very beginning and he came with three D hits. Third comeback, please, because I need some more. There were so many more songs I remembered after he left. Girl was excited. She took us on a journey. Joining me now is Jamae Jackson, BuzzFeed style and beauty writer, to discuss the new Wale album and why he's our Man Crush Monday. <gasps> Yay! Okay, so let's get into this because, you know, Wale is a chocolate man from the Chocolate City. He is. That's what they call DC. If you didn't he know, is. now you know. And um, his music has really been on a roll with this new album. Oh, yeah. I'm really enjoying it. What is it like? What? But let's talk about when we first fell for Wale. Like, mm -hmm. do you remember when you first fell for like him and his? Whether it's him, his looks, his music, his style, his swag. It was all the above. All, girl. Talk to me about because it. Look, sis. I'm a native Washingtonian, born okay. and raised DC girl from the Chocolate City, and, <laughs> and so I saw literally when I saw Wale, I saw like all of the strong black men that I just grew up with. Mm -hmm. Brothers, cousins, fathers, everything. So it was beautiful to just see not only a musician who really brought go-go to the mainstream, yeah. but also just being fine as hell while doing it. I was like, The locks Ooh. is in place. I said, look at your lock, brother. I was like. He's bringing in the style. I, just, I was here for it. Because, you know, you just want as much representation as possible. And again, he was able to bring a very specific niche of music, which is go-go from D.C., to the mainstream. To the mainstream. And I remember I was at Howard, so it was a whole bunch of blackness, just Why with she blackness. Why so loud? 
Howard. I was at Howard. I love Howard alum. Y'all be. In case you didn't know, I went to Howard. No. Right, right. <laughs> but Wale wouldn't want any other way. He's no. on that campus regularly. Girl, he be at homecoming so much, you think he's a student. <laughs> you be like, you a fifth year student. Sixth year. Okay, cool. But what I remember about Wale for me was specifically like, he was like that spoken word DC guy, right? Ooh, like, yeah. like, you know, like. Like busboys and poets. Yeah, of. like, mm-hmm. he, you know, like he could like replace Lawrence Tate and Love Jones and just Ooh. seem like he would be like, say, baby. Yeah. Can I be your slave? Like, that's not something that's that, like, exactly. Wale would say. Like, he used to give us that spoken word vibe like romance talk to women now you know what they do to Love Jones part 2 they gonna see okay well that's another thing but there's an idea (laughs) but I think to say like this album wow that's crazy which is very like niche like I love to play on like fuck boys being like wow Wow, that's crazy crazy. whenever they mess up that's where (laughs) this comes from so really this album is for a while I mean for women Mm-hmm. And, like, a lot of the, like, Wale has always been one of the rappers who talk to women mostly and make, like, romantic songs or, Absolutely. like, songs about relationships. This album is all of that. Absolutely. And it's gotten a really good response from the ladies. He yeah. even got a shout-out from LeBron James. Like, what do you mm. think about this mm. album? I personally love the album a lot. I mean, he comes in from the jump, like, with Sue, with Sue Me. Yes. And I love Sue Me. That's actually my favorite. Say the full it, phrase. It's Sue Me, I'm waiting for, I'm, I'm rooting for everybody black. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> like, Sue Me, I'm, I'm rooting for everybody black. Which is, a, first of all, a wonderful play on Issa Rae when she yes. wore that Pierre Moss uh, belt at the CFDA Awards. But also, throughout the whole song, he's just shouting out different black designers, yes. different ways that he shows up for us. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important for us to show people that, you know, we can be prominent African-Americans who are musicians, but we also can be really amazing in sports. We can be really amazing in politics. We can really be amazing in media. He just shows that, you know, the span of black excellence doesn't just stop (laughs) Mm. at music. like, okay, So sorry, didn't mean to take, caught the spirit when you were giving a little sermon. Wale dropped the spirit on me from the the first track. But it has that celebratory, like, we are in our prime. This is a renaissance. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm here to uplift. I love Mm -hmm. in a genre where hip hop is known for its misogyny that there's a rapper who is out here putting out music that is uplifting black women. Absolutely. Specifically black women and not being afraid to call us out and yeah. be like, this is for y'all. Yeah. I'm here to apologize about my wrongdoings. Right. I love y'all too much, so much that I can't stick to one of you. Right. But like, I'm I also you, here, sir. I'm rooting for y'all. And there's, he even has a BGM song, Black Girl Magic, mm-hmm. which is what BGM stands for. And that video is all black girl magic. It is full it's of beautiful. queens from every shade complexion. It's beautiful. And he even gives nods to Nina Simone. Yeah. And all of, like, he really gives us the spectrum of like yeah it's an ode to us it's an ode but he also shows first of all that he is really skilled at what he does yeah you know you see so many especially new artists who unfortunately are coming out and can sell a beat just because they go you know na 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 while he's rapping about some substance and he, yeah and he's giving you substance and he's showing you like I'm really here and even if he may not necessarily be you know what people's like top three rappers to come to mind you know versus like the Drake's or Meek Mills or just hypothetically in his genre he really does hold his own and I really wish more people would see his greatness yeah he feels a very specific space that's necessary and I want to talk about this tweet from Dre Luttrell because it touches on something we also are talking about which is Wale really rapping about himself going to therapy and getting mental help as a black man should as a black rapper that at that is respect I feel like I really love this album that it con- it coincided with World Mental Health Day. Yeah. And, you know, he's also, Wale has always been pretty outspoken about mental health, especially recently. Yeah. He's talked about how he feels like record labels should support artists with mm-hmm. that more. Yeah. I love my favorite one of my favorite things is when black men talk about therapy. I love it. Consider it a turn on if you must. Because okay. I'm like, yes, clean your mind, clean your brain. Like, let's get rid of this past trauma. It is hard when we are literally seen as, our, our skin is seen as a weapon every day. Yeah. It's necessary to talk about these things. And I feel like Jay was one of the first, I remember doing this with 444, mm-hmm. when he opened up about being on therapy. Yep. And I love to see Wale continue to talk about it. What did Absolutely. you think about this? I mean, I agree with you. First of all, I love when anyone who's, a, especially a person of color and black people in general, just speak about therapy. It helps destigmatize the yeah. stigma that still exists in our community. But more importantly, like Wale gets to introduce this 
idea of therapy to so many young black men and black women who are listening to his album. Mm -hmm. So now they're like, oh my gosh, my favorite rapper also goes to therapy too. So yeah. now if I want to explore it, it's, it's not, not so it's not so uncool. Yeah, it's not so weird. Or it's weird. Yeah. yeah, because I think there's also this weird thing that like if you go to therapy, then you're not swaggy or you're not cool anymore. Or but it's like, like or like you're weaker. Exactly. Like, especially for men. Exactly. Like if they're weaker. And exactly. If not, you're stronger for it. Yeah, and he pulls up to the scene and like Wale carries his own. Like, I'd be like, hey, Wale. Yes. Well, <laughs> Wale is giving us mental health. He is giving us therapy. He's giving us Black Girl Magic Odes, Cup mm -hmm. and Season Tunes. Mm. And we are thankful. So, Wale, Preesh, Jamee, thank you for helping me celebrate our Man Crush Monday. Thank you for allowing me to express my love. <laughs> <laughs> Up next, you will see Alex sit down with Jamila Jamil and Joe Gatto. Spending time on the internet usually involves hearing about other people's misfortunes. Well, now there's a game show that celebrates those misfortunes called the Misery Index. Let's take a look. We have scoured the globe for the world's most miserable true stories. All you have to do is tell us where it lands on the Misery Index. In sausage making ordeal, man, cut off own arm. Why does he look so happy? <laughs> now I'm joined by two of its stars, Jamila Jamil and Joe Gatto. Welcome. Hi. So y'all had me cracking up before this segment even started. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about each of your roles on this show? Uh, I am the mistress of misery. That sounds <laughs> like I'm a dominatrix. This is a very intense sex show. It isn't. Uh, it'll actually kill any erection dead. Yes, uh, agreed. As agreed. can I. Um, so I'm the host of the show, and and we have the amazing tenderloins, one of which is Joe, yeah. who are advising our... Uh, I, was gonna, I was saying earlier that we look like we're announcing <laughs> our baby. I'm going to let you go now. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we are uh, consigliaries to the contestants where we help advise them on what we think would be more mm -hmm. miserable because we know misery very well. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, you know, your pairing might seem counterintuitive to some, but what do you think makes the combination of, uh, you know, y'all work together on the show? Um, I think mostly it's because we are, we need to be classed up. <laughs> and who does that better? They couldn't afford it. <laughs> yeah. So then when those came back, like, who could we get for this? And uh, no, I think it's actually a very good pairing. We we fit very well as a, as a group together. Mm -hmm. She has jumped in with uh, the Impractical Jokers in a, in a very good way. So yeah, yeah it's, it's it's a very fun. Uh, she gets it. She gets our, our, our comedy. We get hers, and it's really fun. I made a joke about jizz as soon as we met. <laughs> We are really kindred spirits. It was really bizarre. The chemistry is just insane with yeah. our group. And so and it was very, very, very immediate. So I think we were well cast and and you know, I love their show and they like the good place. Yeah. And so love. it just felt like a well, it, 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 like there was an amazing synergy and like a kind of a, a respect that we came in with already. And so it was a real relief that guys who've been friends for twenty years would embrace me with such warmth yeah. and love. Yeah. So I was super um, lucky. From seeing some of the clips on the show, uh, certainly the things that you are ranking would rank very high on my misery index. <laughs> Is there something that would top each of your misery indexes? Uh, we there was there was a couple. I don't want to spoil because I want people to watch, but there was a couple of jaw droppers on the show where mm. we we. It's hard to make us speechless. First of all, <laughs> every present company included, and across the board, like after we came out of the clip, everybody was just like. Wow, that happened to someone. <laughs> Do you remember when I almost threw up on the show? <laughs> you, you would tell. You were really? the final you round, round four. I, you, almost, yeah. I almost really? threw up. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I'm not someone who does that very easily, but I literally was certain I was about to vomit on yeah. camera. Uh, the whole show isn't like that, don't worry, but no. there, is, there is one zit that someone had <laughs> for like two oh, decades yeah. and yeah. Oh, no. they break it on camera yeah. and it broke me. Yeah. I mean, I think and I it's like ruined my day. Yeah, remembering. Oh, day, even, totally. I mean, what, do, what do you do? You're the host. You're like essentially refereeing the show. What do you do when you have to take a moment like that? I was just, just going like, to throw oh, up. <laughs> like, I don't care. Like, I was going to throw up in the contestant. Yeah, yeah. That's my prerogative. Yeah. 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 Well, one thing on uh, this show um, that my co-host Zach and I talk a lot about um, is cancel culture and humor that makes us feel good yeah. and humor that makes us feel not so good. I'm sorry, Zach. Back here because uh, he's a uh, you know she's around somewhere. So. <laughs> um, but um, one yeah. one of the reasons why this has come up recently in conversations uh, is because of a uh, uh, from Todd Phillips who is the director of the oh. the film The Joker and Jamila you actually I want to read uh, this tweet from you um, you said and yet the Good Place is pretty funny Fleabag is pretty funny 
Bowery is pretty funny and Practical Jokers are pretty funny. The Favorite was pretty funny. It is possible to be funny even when you aren't punching down. We just punch across or punch ourselves. Um, and I was thinking about this just, you know, just from laughing now and thinking about the show that you're both working on. Um, have you thought about uh, this conversation around cancel culture and why is it so important to you both to, you know, punch across or punch yourself rather than punching down? I think it's just quite lazy humor to punch down. And, you know, this, this show definitely, you know, we walk the line here, mm -hmm. but I think the point is, is that we're laughing at, at kind of people's stupid decisions and also in every single episode our own stupid decisions so it's like we're all in this together yeah, we're we not have... we're not punching down at like marginalised people mm. there's no bigotry yeah. like there's no laziness it's just sort of like old fashioned slapstick based on people's stories that they've like sold to the newspapers and we're reporting <laughs> yeah, yeah. and they're really amazing it's, it's a show that makes fun of kind of typical human error rather mm. than human true like yeah. misfortune I think we all realize and recognize that life does suck mm -hmm. you got to get through it mm -hmm. and the only way the only way really to get through it is just to laugh about how bad it is even even stuff that happens to us we laugh at ourselves as much as we are trying to bring out the humor in other people's situation because yeah. yeah. humor helps you deal with stuff mm -hmm. so that's what we try to do with it yeah it just it's it's just not funny to make fun of people who can't defend themselves yeah. it just it, I don't think that's funny anymore and I think it's just lazy privileged uh, often straight white males not all not all straight <laughs> hashtag not all straight white males but you know, people who've had the right to say whatever they want for the longest time suddenly feel like something's been taken away from them but it's just like all you have to do is step outside of yourself and expand your mind and just try because there are loads of people out there being funny without needing mm -hmm. to bully anyone well thinking of one of the other ways that uh, you know the I should say straight white guy culture is being disrupted right now is you've recently talked um, about the difference between body positivity and body neutrality why is that distinction so important to you? Well, body positivity is a movement that is for women who are persecuted because of their size. So that means doctors misdiagnose them and men because that's people who are who are discriminated against in our society, who can't find clothes, who can't they're just hated and made to feel hated. And that is a movement for them. I'm a slender woman. That is not what I am personally able to advocate for because I don't receive those persecutions. I definitely am an ally to those people, but I personally find, and maybe you'll agree with me, body neutrality and body liberation is the way to be because it means you're just not thinking about your body. You don't have to love your body. You don't have to have it take up space in your mind. You get to just get on with your day and be a floating brain. And that works for me and maybe works for other people as well. But I do feel like while I know that a lot of men, especially nowadays, are starting to face like body insecurities, the majority of the men that I've grown up around just don't think about it. Whereas women think about it perpetually all day long and therefore have less hours in the day to be useful to themselves mm -hmm. and build their happiness and their finances and their orgasm frequently. <laughs> all very important. Mm -hmm. And not necessarily in that order. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, one, one thing too that I was struck by is um, you have a, a pin tweet that went viral, um, which is about acknowledging how you've evolved on different issues and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and evolved on them in the public eye. And something I was struck by is um, your capacity to uh, learn how to take criticism in stride. Mm -hmm. um, how did you learn to, to take criticism? Well, I, I just grew up and got over myself, basically. Like, everyone makes mistakes. Mostly Joe. Famously. I just realised that, like, you know, it's a compliment when people are willing to give you the opportunity to learn. Mm. And so I take it as a sign that people understand that I have the, the strength within to just step up and do better and be better. And that's okay to know that you've still got work to do as long as you're willing to do the work. And I think we need to stop shaming people about not being perfect. Moral purity is not a thing that mm -hmm. exists. Not yeah. truly. We all make mistakes and that's okay as long as you work to constantly undo them. And there's an important distinction between shaming and criticism. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. And yeah. cancellation is just ridiculous. Like, you know, yeah. it just doesn't get anyone anywhere. Um, Joe, you've been in the, the public eye for a long time. Um, do you ever look back at any of your work and think, oh, you know, I would have done something differently? How do you kind of take these conversations in stride? Um, I definitely look at everything that I've done, especially now after I've had a, a daughter and a son mm. and children thinking about my legacy all the time. Like, it's always like, what do I want to see how I made the world laugh through their eyes? And I think that's important. Um, it's different. I have a little bit of a different license with my show because my show is all about trying to get somebody to say no or <laughs> pushing someone too far. Um, so I think there's a little bit of a free range there. But when I'm outside of my show, I think I'm very aware of, you know, I want to make sure that I stay 
positive and uplifting as much as I can to people. Mm. There's a responsibility. He's the kindest. He's the best. Like, I feel so looked after in his company. By the way, my thing about cancellation, some people should be cancelled and just... Yeah. If you've done irrevocable harm, just yeah. fuck off. You know who like, you are, go away. <laughs> yeah. um, well, Jamila Kelly, you go without uh, talking about this tweet, um, oh, which Jesus, was about... Oh, Jesus. Sorry, J-Lo. <laughs> Oh, yeah. uh, doing a scene with JLo today. Uh, doing a scene, I mean, just on repeat. Can you tell us anything about the scene? <laughs> that is uh, footage of Joe. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they have here. Dancing at his wedding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can you tell us anything about it? Uh, just that she's the most professional, wonderful woman. It was just, uh, it was a masterclass working with her. And also, that woman looks as good as butter yeah. tastes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that I, was the only way to describe I, it. I saw Hustlers and I was. Shooked. Yeah. I, yeah. I was shook. No, she's just a she's a wonderful, intelligent, funny human. In your expert good place opinion, would she go to the good place? Opinion? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can only base this off of yesterday's behavior. Okay. And also how she used to treat me when I was a TV host and I used to interview her, mm-hmm. which was always wonderful. So yeah, I'm I'm sending uh, JLo to the good place. Mm. It has been so much fun talking to you both. Same. Thank, Thank you. you so much. The Misery Index premieres on TBS on October 22nd. More AM to DM is up next. Welcome back, y'all. It's time for Add Us. And I must say, it was a fun Monday show. It was a fun Monday show. We got right back into it. Nafisa's whole outfit and everything was... Flawless. Yes, flawless. She's she's lovely, lovely. And I'm trying to stop, to start talking less about people's clothing because, you know, we have better things to talk about. But girl, when you come in with a look, I just got to make note. Do we have better things to talk about? I'm I'm kidding. I love, the thing is, I love fashion. So I'm also like, fashion is substantial. Fashion is substantial. It is. talk about it. True, true, true. That that is very true. But I hear you. I hear you on that. You know, because I think like women, women in Hollywood have to talk about clothing too much. But sometimes we just have to stand. You are 100% correct. I'm aware. I'm conscious. (laughs) Conscious. (laughs) A conscious stand. Well, after our conversation about Mitt Romney, Monica alerted us to this tweet from Max Kennerly. Total speculation. This is about uh, Mitt Romney's uh, Twitter name. Um, It's a pun based on in pari delicto. In pari is replaced with Pierre because Romney did his mission in France and speaks French. And delicto is replaced with delecto, um, which means delight. This explanation is also super dorky and thus likely correct. Okay, well. And I think they're talking about his like, uh, his Mormon He's a Mormon. He's a Mormon. And you, and you go mission. on missions. Yes. Thank you. Yes, you go on missions. Yes. France. That's what you do, yeah. Chic. And That's... and this phrase means like everybody is guilty. So I don't know what kind of Well. Everybody's part of the problem. I don't know what kind of message she's trying to send. I co-signed. Vis-a-vis his username. All right. So. I love it. Well, we asked what's something you thought you'd have as an adult, but don't. Uh, Miss Jonesy, you tweet it. Evening meetings at church or wherever. My parents and their friends were forever gone during the week. Great for my babysitting. But yeah, my evening meetings are just negotiating with felines and deciding whether to add veggies to my meal in a bag for help. You know, negotiating with felines, like that's fine. That can be your work as an adult. Maybe that's like as an adult with kids, you find things like regular meetings to hide in. As a oh yeah, person, you're, no, you're trying to like get yourself out of the yeah. house and schedule time away. And yeah. then as a single person, you're just there with your you're still like enjoying cats. Yeah, I don't like cats though. So well, oh you have cats. Sorry, Elizabeth cats are lovely. Added, okay. <laughs> Elizabeth added kids. This is true. I think that like now millennials put off having children because everything is terrible. Which is weird because we all have a hundred thousand dollars in savings, so we should be able to afford a child. Why are you, we so that afraid? Would, that would be your take. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Let's leave this for today. Thank you to our guests, McKay Coppins, Justin Barragona, Jamee Jackson, Reed Scott, Nafisa Williams, Joe Gatto, and Jamila Jamil. We'll be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day. Bye.